Today I speak with Professor Vina Dubal about her critical and truly disturbing work about how companies like Uber, Lyft, Instacart, and DoorDash are exploiting workers through particularly nefarious means that are hidden from view and that have changed the very nature of work. And most importantly, we talk about how people are speaking back and we urge people to rip the mask off the algorithm and to organize against it rather than try to fight it on its own terms. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the Creative Process and is made with support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. Thank you so much for being here, Vina. I had a very ambivalent feeling reading your work because on the one hand, I was super appreciative of it and it's scary as shit as you bring out so well. It seems like the advent of something terrible. I thought we'd begin by talking about Proposition 22, and for most of the world, which does not live in California, can you explain what the proposition process is? Because I think that gets us into how a law can be bought. Yeah, this is a really critical and important question. So in a number of states in the United States, we have what's known as direct democracy. This is a bit of a misnomer because what this looks like is it gives citizens the opportunity to be legislators. So as long as you have a certain number of people sign on to put a law on the voting ballot during a regular election and enough people vote for it, then the law can be passed. And that sounds like democracy. And that sounds really great, except that the reality is that this happens in a particular political economy where firms and corporations in particular have a ton of money to put laws that they can't get passed in legislatures on the ballot. So in the case of Proposition 22, you had companies, Uber, Instacart, DoorDash, and Lyft and spend $223 million to put a proposition on the ballot and to convince California voters that it was something they should go for. One of the things that was really startling and discouraging was the number of liberal and progressive organizations that signed on to these horrible measures, right? How did that happen? So since its very beginning, Uber started in San Francisco officially in 2010. And this is after the Great Recession. This is on the heels of Occupy Wall Street. There's a real sense that new worlds are possible and necessary. And one of the things that they did early on was hire Obama's former campaign manager, David Plouffe. So from the very beginning, they were able to leverage the political clout and connections of well-heeled liberal Democrats who were out of a job and were looking to make money in the private sector. David Plouffe pushed the Uber narrative all over the world and alongside any number of legal theorists, economists, political scientists, management science professors, really convinced lawmakers and workers and regular people that Uber was something new, that Uber was a new kind of firm. It was just an intermediary, not a traditional boss that had workers, and that this new firm was creating new kinds of not only economic relationships, but new experiences of work. And by 2020, when Proposition 22 was on the ballot, we all knew better. 
We had a good 10 years of empirical research to show us that this was a majority racial minority workforce and that these workers were living hand to mouth and that Uber was yet another neoliberal iteration of firms sloughing off the risk of doing business onto workers. But these early connections that they had and made in politics played a critical role in their ability to get organizations like the NAACP of California. California, like the Sepueda Foundation, played a really critical role in them getting these folks on board. And so when you had $223 million worth of constant advertising everywhere you looked on YouTube, via text message, on Google ads, combined with this endorsement of the law by household organizations, names that we are all familiar with, the NAACP, when you had these two things together, it, it tricked a lot of voters. People did not know what they were voting for. And I'm convinced on some level, some of these organizations also didn't know really technically what they were signing up to endorse, because the reality is the law was quite complicated and really requires a sophisticated understanding of what employment and labor laws do and how regular employment labor laws are different from the proposition. A phrase that you used that they employed to promote Uber was, it will change the experience of work, which actually it did in a really negative way. And I'd like to get back into that in more detail in a second. But I was thinking about another guest that I had on uh, a month or so ago, Naomi Oreskes from Harvard, who has a book called The Big Myth. And she tells how something that you talk about in your articles, the promotion of these new work regimes under the rubric of freedom, right? The mm -hmm. way that these companies twist language such that it is easy to convince people that they have more freedom, but right to move and be almost self-employed. It's a very deceptive way of looking at it, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the implications of this new work beyond California, just so we can get more of the audience tuned into what's happening. Yeah. So let me say at the outset that what these companies did and what Uber in particular did was take advantage of the pathologies of existing employment practices. In the U.S., as in most other countries all over the world, being a worker sucks. You are by law in a default sense at the women whimsy of your employer. And so this desire to be free from employer control, to be able to do the things that you need to do and behave in the ways that you want to behave, this is a a powerful, inherently human desire that we, we really understand and value. But instead of actually liberating that desire, what these companies did was to create a system where it is true that workers can log on to their app whenever they want, but at the same time, they cannot have freedom over how much they earn. They cannot have freedom over necessarily where they go and how they do their work. They can't develop clientele. There's all plethora of other limitations. And as one driver told me along time ago, sure, I have the freedom of time. I can work in my car. I can sleep in my car. I can eat in my car. I can do everything in my car. And that is the flexibility that they're giving us, which of course is not flexibility. And it took a really long time for, I think, both researchers and courts in particular, relying on research to capture the new forms of control that these companies are deploying. A lot of the control is invisible. When we think about these firms in a broad context, in a global context, I want to make a couple of important points. One important point is that 
In the U.S., this is a pretty small portion of the labor market, and that just isn't true in the global south. In Brazil, workers groups are saying that the companies have admitted that they make up that there are a million deployed workers in the country, making them one of the largest groups of workers, second only to domestic workers. Similarly, this is a growing way that people labor in India and China. What started in here in San Francisco really has proliferated, and it's no surprise because it's unleashed all of these capital from all these regulations that were imposed in the last century, basic things like the minimum wage, basic things like providing insurance to workers if they are injured, basic things like like giving them some form of workers' compensation or providing health insurance or all these things that make being a boss expensive, they've been able to get rid of. And it's particularly egregious in parts of the world. It's awful in the U.S., but this has been combined elsewhere with other kinds of labor management experiences. Like in Brazil, for a while, Uber was experimenting with payday loans. So they're both the boss they know exactly yep. how much workers are making and they're the debt collector. You can imagine the how, what systems of labor peonage that creates. And so the, the kinds of ex exploitative practices that we're seeing with these companies is not just linked to just wages and working conditions, but something much broader in terms of political and economic power that workers have or don't have. And the reality is that this way of work that these companies have deployed has also become a site of unregulated labor management. And so a lot of the kind of practices that started in Uber have now spread elsewhere, including the practice of personalized wage setting, ubiquitous surveillance, coercive psychological experiments, making workers behave in certain ways using carrots and sticks rather than just telling them what they need to do or what they don't need to do. All of these things we saw pronounced in what we call gig work in the last eight years. And during the pandemic, they've been amplified across the labor market and all kinds of other spaces. I'd like to get exactly to those things in a second. But one of the things that's such an indispensable part of the research that you shared with me was precisely the testimonials that you mentioned one a few minutes ago by a worker. And I realized that you had just recently spoken in Brazil. I would love for you to share with the audience some of what you heard in Brazil from workers. I think that would be really powerful. Yeah, I had this really powerful experience where I went and spoke at the labor ministry in Brazil, and I had the opportunity to meet with workers who are both driver workers who are working for Uber and similar companies, and then also delivery couriers working for like Rappi and iFood. And what was striking is that everything that they were saying is the exact same thing that everything that workers in the U.S. are saying with regard to instability of their wages that are way too low, being controlled by algorithms, being terminated unfairly and without cause or reason. Everything, all of these complaints are the same all over the world. But of course, when you're talking about part of the world that's already been besought by decades of colonialism that has dealing with all kinds of continued forms. These workers at the, the very bottom are suffering perhaps in more extreme ways through similar labor management systems. And worker had this really powerful testimonial. He brought his child's plastic plate and plastic spoon and talked about how sometimes, despite the fact that he carries food for everyone else all day long, he cannot fill the plate of his own child. He started crying. I was deeply moved. And it really reinforced what I have been saying for a long time. We live in this country, and this is true of neoliberal ideology the world over, that if you're willing to work and you work hard, then you should be able to make it. 
And if you can't, that fault is somehow yours. I think what the system that has been created here in this context is one in which people can work really hard, really long with a lot of skill and a lot of enthusiasm and still not make it because by design, they are not intended to be able to make it. There is a way in which the companies feed off the desperation of the poor. They rely on the desperation and the anxiety and the precarity of the working poor in order to force them to work longer and harder. And that is part of the system. And the hypocrisy of this, the utter lack of corporate responsibility and the premium placed on placing the responsibility on the workers who are working, as you say, under invisible control. In other words, there are all these mechanisms which make it impossible for them to be, quote unquote, responsible because they have no idea of actually the conditions under which they work. One of the main things that I wanted to talk about is this idea of algorithmic wage discrimination. I'd like you to take as yeah. much time as you need to talk about that, because that to me is such a terrible and pervasive example of what you're talking about. Yes, I too think that this is perhaps the most insidious, nefarious, evil aspect of what is to come, not just that we see already in these companies, but that is likely to spread as a practice, as a labor management practice. But I just want to say that the week after I left Brazil, there was a really important lower court decision. It was class action brought by the Brazil's independent labor prosecution division, alleging that Uber was an employer. And in a hundred and something pages decision, the most detailed decision I've seen from globally, the judge essentially said that Uber was a hyper employer and not just an employer. He said that they exerted more control than any firm to date in the history of modern capitalism. And he specifically said that what was so clear was that they were controlling the quote unquote, collective consciousness of workers. Wow. And that is what we think of or what scholars of work talk about as algorithmic management. That is like using social psychology combined with engineering, what we know about human behavior, to literally trick workers, to manipulate them, to provide them with fake information, real information, bonuses, quotas, stickers, all kinds of different things that make them behave in particular ways and actually play them off of each other. And so I think that relates directly to what I've called algorithmic wage discrimination. And so algorithmic wage discrimination is the term that I'm using for personalized, digitalized payments, personalized, digitalized wages. So firms have a ton of data on us. In the Uber context, for example, Uber knows and can decipher any individual driver's everyday habits, how long they'll work on a daily basis, where they like to work, when they stop, where they stop. They have information on how much generally a worker will labor before they stop working on any given day. So say if I work every day until I hit $500, they know that and they can make it harder and harder for me to hit $500, making me work longer hours before I can get to $500. And all of this, and they certainly probably have all the data that you can purchase on someone that they likely have. And then they can use that data to personalize wages. When I say that Uber engages in algorithmic wage discrimination, I'm saying that workers laboring for Uber who are laboring in the exact same way at the exact same time in the exact same place will make vastly different sums of money. They'll make vastly different hourly wages. 
And the reasons that they make different hourly wages is completely opaque. We don't understand it. We don't know it. It's everything hidden behind a black box. After I released this paper, workers for drivers did all these videos where they showed how sitting side by side, they were given quote unquote opportunities. They were given the same work, given the same jobs and received vastly different wages for those jobs. Just again, sitting next to one another. An example that really drives this point home is one of my Uber driver friends was explaining to me that he was really close to getting his bonus. And bonus bonuses are how Uber drivers make money because the base fares are so low. And so every week, each Uber driver, for reasons unknown to us, might or might not get different bonuses. And again, this is totally personalized to the driver. And so that week or that month, if he did a certain number of rides, he would get a certain bonus. Let's say it's a $100 bonus. And so it's late on a Friday night and he's one ride away. And he said that he drove and drove for hours. He was in a really busy area of Los Angeles. He saw people everywhere waiting for their Ubers and the system was not allocating work to him. And he conjectured, and that's all we can do because it's all happening behind a black box, but he conjectured that he wasn't getting this last ride because Uber didn't want him to get his bonus. These things happen all the time. Drivers think they figured out a system. They're excited about things and then it just goes away or the thing that they figured out no longer works. They were making a good amount of money the first six months that they were working for Uber and then all of a sudden their wages drop precipitously after they have become fully reliant on the work. Like These are very common stories for workers who are laboring for companies like Uber and Lyft. And I should say that algorithmic wage discrimination flies in the face of other norms we have around work. There's this general idea that if you and I are doing the same work, then we're going to get the same amount of money, right? That's equal pay for equal work. That's Title VII, Uber and Lyft. Practice really upends that idea. And it also, again, creates a system where there's no predictability. What you made last week is not how much you're going to make this week. It's very hard to plan life around wages that are constantly shifting. And there are a lot of workers are on WhatsApp groups or they're on Facebook groups and there'll always be some guy that posts like a huge payout. Oh, I made $4,000 last month or whatever. And everyone else is left wondering, what did I do wrong? So even though the system is designed to make you earn very little, the impact is that it makes workers feel like they're doing something wrong because, wow, they saw in a WhatsApp group that someone else made it. So psychologically, it's incredibly difficult. Difficult. It also makes it difficult to organize, right? Because if you have workers that are making vastly different sums, you don't have one wage that people are making and can complain about, you have a lot of worker division. And this is, again, all by design. This is a way to divide workers. It's a way to control workers. It's a way to prevent collectivization. I'm just asking our listeners to imagine what life would be like if every day you go to work and you don't know how much money you're going to make from one day to the next, and you're doing exactly the same work. And as you point out, Fina, it's psychologically so devastating because it's not just your work life, it's your entire life. If you're supporting a family, if you're investing in something, if you have healthcare issues, you cannot plan anything. So the idea that companies are saying your success is solely your responsibility is an utter lie. You have no control yeah. over anything. And exactly one, right. one quote from one of your interviewees says, Uber operates in very opaque ways. They're collecting your information and they know everything about you. They they know what route you're taking, your personal information, where you're going. But when it comes to the output of the algorithm, 
all that is obscured, there is no way to know why the app is making these decisions for me. And I just want to center on that last phrase, why the app is making these decisions for me, right? That's yeah. so terrible. And yet, as you point out, the way the game works is that they will promote when the app does something beneficent. It's almost like a weird, satanic, godlike yeah, thing, right? that's right. That's precisely right. This is what I say in that paper, that it is precisely the giving of hope and taking away the giving of freedom and taking away like the incredible puppet-like control that is invisible that these companies are exerting that is so cruel. Lauren Berlant, in her work on cruel optimism, her idea about how there are things in this world that we think will bring us freedom, but in fact trap us. That's a terrible rearticulation of what cruel optimism is. Mm -hmm. But when you're attached to something or to a form of life and, and it brings you optimism and that that's actually killing you, that is what gig work is. That's what it means to labor under these systems of algorithmic management, where it makes you feel free. It makes you, in certain instances, feel like you have scheduling independence, et cetera. But at the same time, it is those things that inherently are the cause of your devastating precarity. And one of the things you talk about along with that is the destruction of the notion of moral expectations, which yeah. I think you really bring out the history of how progressive labor laws have been destroyed. Talk a little about how we grow up or those of us who are older grew up with a kind of moral universe that you felt was relatively stable, but under yeah. these new regimes has been utterly shredded. Yeah, I think that the generation right below me doesn't have access to the kinds of expectations around work that even my generation had access to, and it may be that your generation had access to. And these aren't expectations around work that by any means were reached huge swaths of the population, but they were general ideals that people should be getting a living wage and that we have this system of work laws, we have federal minimum wage and we have overtime laws so that people don't have to work 60 hours a week to earn a living to make ends meet. This idea that workers should also be able to be consumers. This was a conservative idea that came out of the living wage movement in the late part of the 1800s and early 20th century, that workers should be consumers and economic growth is good. And that so if workers were consumers, then had enough money to buy things, then this was somehow good for the economy. So really tying worker well-being to overall ideas of economic growth. We also had these ideas born of labor movements, born of the civil rights movement, that in general, workers shouldn't experience discrimination. That's not normal. It's not okay for women to earn less or for Black people to earn less. And all of these things, the minimum wage laws, Title VII, the anti-discrimination laws, these emerged after people died in the streets. Massive protesting, a lot of families going hungry, children going hungry, a lot of striking, a lot of police violence against strikers. These laws that my generation took for granted were the result of really radical organizing. And in effect, what this kind of work, what Uber does through their systems of algorithmic management and regulatory arbitrage is rip the Band-Aid off of our assumptions of what constitutes a moral economy of work. And so one of the most fascinating and really upsetting things for me was to discover that Uber's chief economist, Jonathan Hall, alongside other economists, published a paper during 
at the, the height of the COVID pandemic in 2021, published a paper that showed that women Uber drivers make about 7% less than male Uber drivers. And they published this data. This is the kind of data that the EEOC has been trying to get from firms since forever, right? We want to know when there are these kinds of discrepancies because we want to know that it's there and we want firms to fix it. But rather than trying to hide this, they just published it like, oh, isn't this interesting? Mm. And the reason that women worked at different times than men, they said that it was because of, quote unquote, the logic of Uber's compensating differentials. Now, what the heck that means? Who knows? But basically they're saying like, oh, it's just, it's algorithmic wage discrimination. It's the systems that we use to pay people. It's recreating the gendered wage gap. And they pushed it. No fear that there's going to be a disparate impact lawsuit. And we've moved into an area now, a place now where I have to argue with economists who say to me, this isn't wage discrimination. And I'm like, this this is wage discrimination. The structure of Uber's payment system is resulting in women earning less. It doesn't have to be intentional. This is what structural racism looks like. This is what structures of gender difference or economic issues in the labor market as they relate to gender. It's become normalized such that they can publish this in a peer-reviewed paper without fear of being shut down. My big concern is that this system of personalized pay starts moving into other sectors, which it already has. We see it in the healthcare sector with nurses. We even see it amongst uh, computer scientists working, laboring for IBM. There's one instance of documented instance of IBM using Watson software in Japan, where the labor union claims that this software is not only giving different workers different wages, like evaluating them in a black box way and then providing different wages. But it just so happens that it's the union organizers that are making the lowest wages under this surveillance system. And we see this seeping into all aspects of the labor market and even traditionally not blue collar sectors like nursing. And there's a sense in which it's just becoming normal. We're just like, I guess I'm going to get a different wage than Betty. And I must, it must be because of something I'm doing wrong, as opposed to this is how the system is designed to keep us divided. And even more frightening is that it's not just work anymore, but this whole thing of machine learning and algorithms. In another program, I was talking with Andrew Ross and Julie Livingston, and we were remarking about the tolerance the system has for error, right? Mm-hmm. That all these had with privacy issues and personal data and the ways in which we are so beholden to algorithms that we trust, there'll be some error but it'll all sort out at the end. And so the ultimate, not even beneficence, but the ultimate reality of algorithms. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, had this glimmer of hope that you floated out there, but then I think quite instructively shot down, which was this idea of data collectives, right? People mm-hmm. will gather the data instead. And so it's a liberatory hijacking of data. But I think you have a very good exposition and critique of it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'm very skeptical of data for two reasons. In this particular context, when you have Uber drivers collecting their own data and cooperatively owning it, what it does is incentivizes data collection, right? So in a scenario where you can imagine like a GDPR-like scenario where you say, no, I'm not permitting you to collect my data. The incentive is to actually collect it. And once it's collected, you have very little control over where it goes. And so my fear is that those in the wage context give in to the practice of algorithmic wage discrimination, give in to the myth that data 
collection is a necessary good. It's not. Data is not power. Power exists in the political economy. It's about who has access to power. And collection of data can be used in really nefarious ways for people who have the least amount of it, as we're seeing in the banking context, as we're seeing, obviously, in the work context, everywhere, criminal justice context. And then my second critique of it is that so workers have been able to sell some of the data that they collect, and they've been able to get a little money from it. But it's a really difficult and complicated technical thing to collect the data that's being collected on you by Uber. And so they've relied on these third-party data brokers. So one in particular is called Argyle. And Argyle has been criticized by watchdog agencies like Coworker for phishing gig workers for all of their data. And Argyle itself holds itself out to be a data broker that sells all the employment data of gig workers. And so you have a data collective that's made up of workers that has this access to this set. But you also have a really potentially nefarious data broker that has access to all of this data and also selling it. And so where does that leave the workers in this context without a lot? And I think in this whole new world of work, there's a lot of excitement about different things like platform cooperatives, data cooperatives. But all of these things, while I think well-intentioned, they really are not getting at what I consider to be the most dangerous parts of our future and present labor economy, which is where we have really concentrated actors, really powerful Uber and Lyft or duopoly. If I wanted to start a cooperative ride-hail company tomorrow, no way in hell could I compete because they have captured the market. There's no antitrust regulation in this sector. And so what does my cooperative even mean? So I often think a lot more energy needs to be put into good old-fashioned labor organizing. And the the same, I think, is true for data co-ops. I share in the hope and the excitement in some instances, but I'm also inherently very skeptical. I'm certainly no expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I've been around the world for a while. And it was almost predictable because, as you say, the scale is such a quixotic notion that we can own our data and we can then become competitors, if not superior to, by sheer moral force, the actual political economy. Could you talk about the, the section Voices from Below? Oh, yes, on how drivers are experiencing algorithmic wage discrimination. So in the literature on platform work, people talk a lot about gamification. And somehow globally, this has become the sociological descriptor of what it feels like to work through a platform, to work through this digital machinery. And so my corrective to this is that gamification is way too much of a benign term to describe how people are experiencing this. In fact, what is happening is that work feels like a gamble. And that insight, of course, came from my interlocutors themselves. I I noticed in my field notes over and over again, the words casino, gambling, roll the dice, this way that workers relate to their work, no longer through possibilities of security, but literally through the lack of control that you feel when you are gambling. And as one of the drivers put it, the house always wins. And in addition to feeling like they're constantly engaging in a gamble, which is really dystopian, I will also say that that workers constantly recognize they're being tricked and manipulated. And in fact, in the management science literature, there are articles telling firms that they should take advantage of the fact that drivers know that they're being tricked and manipulated to further trick and manipulate. And this fraud, statutes, business and professional codes. But again, all of this is happening in ways that we can only guess. And it's very hard to prove because it's all black box stuff. And so this is a critical moment in which we're seeing the 
fundamental transformation of work. We're seeing how the everyday experience of work is changing. The kinds of work people are doing is exactly the same, but the way that digital machines are interacting with human workers is causing the way that firms are programming them is resulting in an age of chance for workers. Everything feels like a gamble. I don't underscore this, but it's there. That A lot of references to God and the divine, just like we have no idea what's going to happen next. It's completely out of our control. And the reality is, it's not chance, it's not out of your control. Some people within the firm have designed the system to make you feel this way. And we collectively need to realize that this mm-hmm. is all avoidable. A human has programmed the system to do this. And also that there can be an intervention here. I think about the Industrial Revolution and how in one century, we went from hundreds, thousands of, of deaths in steel mills to a 90% decrease in the death in steel mills as a result of a regulatory system that forced companies to create safer work environments. And what we have here with this new machine, this new digital system is fundamentally unsafe for bodies, for minds, for communities, for families, a fundamentally unsafe work environment in which people are not only dying in dangerous accidents, not only being maimed, not only being shot, because this is, again, dangerous work, but also they're being emotionally, psychologically coerced and manipulated in ways that are fundamentally unhealthy for the human mind. That's a powerful indictment. And I appreciate greatly your call for getting back to collective organizing. We don't need to fall into the mystification of the algorithm and try to battle it on its own terms, but we can go back to our inherent moral and human capacities which can only really flourish under a spirit of organization and collective activism. So thank you so much, Vina, for being on the show. I know you've been working an awful lot to gather all this, and you're working on a book, which we look forward to talking about in the future. So thank you so much. David, thank you. And before you go, I just have to say for the record that when I was in college, you were the only hope that so many of us progressive students, radical students had. And although it might be a lonely place for you over there in Silicon Valley at Stanford, your role as a mentor and a guiding light and an organizer over many decades has been just so key and inspiring for so many of us. Well, thank you so much for that, Vina. And as you were saying this, and you've said this to me before, but not in a potentially public record, the modest part of me said, I can't possibly leave that in the podcast. But no. You better. You, you're a lawyer. You might sue me for depriving you of your free speech rights. There you go. It's a First Amendment issue. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview. 